So we've asked this question, can we get the lights too? What is the local church? Um, we've used Jonathan Lehman's definition on the local church, and I can't remember if I plugged it up there or put it up there on the screen this morning or not. You've got it in your notes. I'll help you fill in the blanks. A local church is a group of Christians, a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Those last two blanks are preaching and ordinances. So week one, we went to the Bible and we saw two things, that a local church is made up of Christians indeed. So we've been changed by the gospel. We were once a certain type of person. After the gospel comes in, we are another type of person. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 says this, that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That's your identity. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we were once nobody in one sense, and now we are God's people. We had not received his mercy, now we have his mercy. Now, a local church also gathers. So here are these people who are God's people. They have received mercy, and now we are also gathering together. And this gathering is physical in nature. We have to emphasize that in an age where you can follow a church halfway around the world through internet connections. We are, we are pressing into this that a church is a called out group of people who come together and physically gather. And then last week, we covered that a local church is made up of members. And so we went to several different passages. We saw the picture of membership. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul used that example of the body parts and how they are all interconnected. And then not only is this picture of membership there, but you also see the practices within the church that require membership. So we talked about the practice of elders shepherding a congregation. Elders need to know who is in their congregation and who is not. And membership identifies who is in and who's not. You also have the biblical practice of church discipline. Um, it's a means of overseeing your brothers and sisters and encouraging people to move away from sin and move closer to God. We also saw that there's this practice in 1 Timothy 5 where there is this responsibility on the church to take care of widows who have no family members. There's also a time in churches when you have to bring charges against pastors who have erred away from truth. And all of those practices require a sense of who's in and who's out. Who are the widows that are in? And then who is the congregation that's bringing the charges against a pastor if he has wandered into sin? So that's review from the previous two weeks. Now this morning we are covering the last two components of this definition, which include gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. So the two points to your sermon, point number one, are simply this, gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. These are means that God uses to oversee us and keep us in his church. So let's just sort of unpack how this looks. Gospel preaching. Now, what do we mean when we say gospel preaching? 
Does it mean that each week I stand up in the pulpit and open to say a verse like John 3.16 and speak about the gospel in the sense that Jesus died and that's the, the content of our sermon that he died for us? It's not just that because there is more to the Bible than John 3.16s. So what is it that we mean by gospel preaching should be part of a local church? Well, it's the kind of preaching that believes that every word of Scripture here is given for the purpose of understanding who God is. God has given us his word and he He has revealed what he wants us to know about him in this word. So gospel preaching has these three components. Number one, helps us understand who God is. Second, it helps us understand who we are as his creation. And third, it shows us then how to live in relationship with God. So The Bible, God's word, is giving us just a revelation of how great he is, the creator, who we are as the created, and then showing us over and over and over again how we are to live in relationship with him. And so, so many times you'll hear about, here's God in a sermon, and here's us in a sermon. Now, what do we do? We go forward in obedience to God. The question is, why is that kind of preaching important? Where we look at the greatness of God, we look at who man is, and what it is to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Well, it's important because God has created us to have a relationship with him through Christ. And if we are not following the cues that he's given to us to have a relationship with him through Christ then our relationship with him is crumbling. It's going to be dried up. It's going to be empty in a sort sort of way. And that's where this passage from Ezekiel 37 really helps us. I think young people, you might really appreciate what's going on in Ezekiel 37. It's how life comes from God's word. So if you're in Ezekiel 37, it says in verse 1, as Jason read, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and sat me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. So this vision is given for a purpose. So let's just soak ourselves in it for a second. Ezekiel's in this valley, hills on each side, and down in the valley, perhaps gravity has had its effect where all the bones have been down there, or perhaps there was a war and there were corpses, and all of that has rotted away over the course of time, but he can see that there are bones down in this valley, human bones, there's skull bones, there's rib bones, there's leg bones. They've been dried out by the sun and they're just laying there in the dirt, It's obvious that this particular place is a place of lifelessness. There's no life here. And then God asks Ezekiel a very interesting question in verse 3. As he sees the bones, God asks, Son of man, that's a title for Ezekiel in his book, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, only you know. And, And the thought is here, Ezekiel's saying, if these bones are to live, there's nothing that I can do in and of myself to cause these bones to live. So God, it's only in your hands if these bones are to live. 
And so you can imagine him walking through this valley, kicking the bones and saying, there's no life at all here. So the Lord says in verse 4, prophesy over these bones and say to them this, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. It's clear. Here's an understandable task for Ezekiel. Ezekiel, I want you to go into this valley of bones and I want you to command them to do one thing. I want you to command these bones to do what? To simply hear the word of the Lord. That's the one thing these dead bones are commanded to do. Simply listen. And notice what takes place after these dead bones begin to listen to the word of the Lord. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews, that's like the tendons and the ligaments that have rotted away over the course of time. It holds it all together. I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh, like muscles, to come upon you and cover you up with skin. And I'll put breath in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Like, this is a valley of impossible life here. And the only way that it's going to come to life is if these bones listen to the word of the Lord. And only then, when these bones start coming together, they will know this is God who has done this. So verse 7, Ezekiel goes to the bones and I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And you can imagine the bones on the ground starting to shake loose from the dirt Bones are attracted to bones, and there's a knee bone connected to the thigh bone. No singing now. And the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, now on the bones, there is appearing these sinews, these ligaments, and these tendons. And then off that starts to come flesh, and the skin is now growing over the bones, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into these bodies now, and they lived and stood on their feet, and here was an exceedingly great army. So just step back for a minute. In this vision, you have the word of the Lord being spoken, and as it is spoken, the dead bones begin to come together as skeletons. And then with flesh and skin, and now because the power of God's spoken word, there is a great army of them. God calls for the breath to come. This breath comes in and he makes these skeletons come to life. So we've gone from a valley of dry bones to the bones coming together to an army being formed. And so out of death has come this picture of this army that conquers. And the point of the vision is to convey a message found in verse 11. So look at verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, that is Israel says, our bones are dried up. And our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. So here's a place where God's people had lost hope. They felt like spiritual life had just been sucked out of them. Sin and idolatry had come in, taken over. Spiritual deadness towards God was here to stay. They were lifeless. You think about this in the life of a church, just moving it to a contemporary context. 
That happens so many times in churches where once there was life, the word of the Lord was spoken, and then over the course of maybe one pastor, maybe two, they get off course, and it, it becomes a valley of dry bones. It becomes lifeless in the church. But verse 14, God comes along and he says, no, life is here, and I'm going to put my spirit within you, and you will live. Now, as you just step back, what began the process for these bones to be able to live. It all began by God telling Ezekiel, command these bones to hear the word of the Lord. And out of hearing the word of the Lord, here comes this process where life begins to come, where God's life comes into people's lives, where he makes them from dead people to live people. And so I think about Jesus' words when he's out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. He says, no man shall not live. It's not life just by bread alone, physical bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus himself eventually becomes that word to us. John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and he became life for us. And so Folks, just looking at this here, when we talk about gospel preaching being the center of a church, we're talking about the power that God uses through his word to bring deadness out of our souls and put life there. And so I'm asking the question at this point, how can we walk away from this portion of the sermon with application? I think there's two levels here for application. One is a personal level, and then second, there's a corporate level. On a personal level, there is a sense in which we at times feel like the valley of dry bones. There's times in our lives when we feel like life has been sucked out of us. There's nothing left. And you're like, God, are you there? Because it just seems as though this is a place where there's no life. Where should you go? Where should you turn? What if your life has been there? What if you're there this morning or this past week where you're just like, God, where are you? Because my life is empty. It's hollow. It feels dead. Well, he would say this, hear the word of the Lord. On a personal level, engage the word of the Lord. It's truth that God's word moves us away from sin deadness and directs us into a relationship with him means that we should purposefully individually take time to be in God's word responding to his God to God's word opening it reading it listening applying it let me borrow an illustration from an author whom I was reading this last week you're at work there are emails and phone calls that come in And just by nature of the subject heading of the emails, you can tell that someone got your contact information and put you on a massive emailing list. And you're like, would you please get me off, unsubscribe, delete, whatever, get it out of here. And maybe there's a phone call that comes in and you know just by looking at the number that you don't know anybody from San Diego, California. This is just one of those spam calls and you're just gonna let it roll to voicemail. Perhaps you're going to block the caller gets deleted, all of that stuff. But then, whether you're at work or at home, could be either place, 
There are emails that you know you need to open. There are phone calls you know you need to take. They have information that you need, that you need to act upon right away, that they are looking for a response in return in order to keep the project going or in order to keep the communication moving forward. What if the Lord, the creator of our souls, like the omnipotent God, the, the one who's created the universe, the, the judge whom we are eternally accountable to? What if he sent you a document to read and you know he expects you to read it? You know he expects you to engage in it. He's saying, I have passed this along for you. This is the word of the Lord. Of course, the answer is he has given us. He's given us his word, and so we should be taking time to regularly pick up God's word and read it. And you'll soon see that feeding on God's word creates appetite for God's word. You might say, I just feel lifeless, so why should I pick up the word? I mean, I just, I just feel like there's nothing there. I, we don't live by our feelings, folks. Let the truth go out in front of you that this is God's word. He has spoken, and now we turn to it for life. And we don't just read it, we believe it. Believe the word of the Lord. Trust that God is close to the brokenhearted this week and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Trust that tomorrow morning his mercies are going to be new for another new day. He's given you that in his word. Trust that a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Trust that he can sympathize with the weakness that you're experiencing right now. Trust that he will give grace and mercy to those who are in their time of need. Know that God loves you and he sent his son Jesus to die and take the punishment that you deserve for your sins. Trust him. Here's the word of the Lord. Trust it. That's a personal level. But corporately, we gather together as a local church. What are applications for us on that level? Well, second, if, if God has given us the word and it should be preached and declared, then we should expect that the center of the local church needs to be the teaching and preaching of God's word. Like, we gather together around this because God has spoken. All the other things like greeters and styles of music and styles of dress and coffee and all of that stuff, not bad, but we need to be careful that our desires or distaste for those things do not distract us from what is essentially most important. I was just talking with a sister a couple of weeks ago, and she said, I've got a friend, and I don't think their friend was here. So it was just a, a story that she was talking about. And the friend said, I just can't go to a particular church because the style of this or the style of that. Do they preach the word? It sounded like they preached the word. And she responded to me, and she says, I, I come to church like I... Her spirit was, I enjoy the singing, but I come, I come to church because I need God's word. This is what God gives to us. He gives us his word. So expect, then, that the center of the church would be the preaching and teaching of God's word. And third, simply speaking, encourage pastors and teachers, specifically at this church, by sharing with them how the preached word of God was helpful. And I'm not saying this for myself, but for the ongoing health of our church. Occasionally, someone will come up to me and say, man, I'm really enjoying this ABF hour. This teacher is really good. And I'll say something like this. Have you let the teacher know? 
it's encouraging for him to know that his role in preaching God's word is accomplishing its purposes. So as a congregation, one of the ways that you can keep the word central is continually encourage your pastors and teachers with, hey, this was helpful. I needed that. God's word spoke to me in this area. And it's not about an individual or a personality. It all goes back to this is what God has given us in his word. So gospel preaching is central to the life of the local church. It feeds our souls and guards us from going back to a time where we lived apart from Christ. It's the means that God uses to keep us close to him. So gospel preaching is essential. There's a second characteristic which you ought to expect, and that is the gospel ordinances. So this is point number two, if you're following on the outline, gospel ordinances. What do we mean by you should expect gospel ordinances in your church? When we say ordinance, it simply means that God has ordained these practices to be part of the church life. Ordinance, ordain. God has ordained these specific practices to be part of a church life. One author, Dr. Greg Allison, says it this way, that an ordinance is a Christian rite or a Christian ceremony. And this ceremony is associated with tangible elements, water, for baptism, which we'll discuss in just a moment, and then the bread and wine, which is communion. These are celebrated by the church of Jesus Christ. So an ordinance is ordained by God, and it's a Christian rite, or it's a Christian ceremony that we are supposed to enter into. And there's two ordinances that should be a part of the local church. The first one is simply baptism, letter A, and the second one is communion, or the Lord's Supper. So let's talk about baptism as a church. Like, what should you expect as a local church in terms of the practice of baptism? Our Catholic friends believe that baptism is a means of saving grace. The Catechism of the Catholic Church reads the following way. Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to life in the Spirit, and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as children of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated in the church, and made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water and the word. And it goes on to say this. This sacrament is also called the washing of regeneration and renewing, renewal by the Holy Spirit, for it signifies and actually brings about the birth of water and the Spirit without which no one can enter the kingdom of God. All right, so in this particular view, I just want to be clear, baptism is what saves a person. And I'm bringing that up because sometimes it's helpful to say this is what we're not first and then this is what we are. We don't believe, and just want to clear this up, we do not believe that the Bible teaches that baptism, that ceremonial rite, saves a person. In fact, I think after reading that, we have a responsibility to walk back the teaching, walk back the understanding of baptism to its biblical definition or its biblical teaching. And let me do that by just asking and answering five questions so that we can see biblically what baptism is. Number one, what is baptism? Number one, what is baptism? It is an outward sign or declaration that you believe in the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. And I want to emphasize the part, it is the outward sign or declaration here. That you are believing in Jesus' death, his burial, 
and his resurrection. Take your Bibles and just go to Romans chapter 6 for a moment. Romans 6, Paul uses this language here, which helps us understand um, this definition of what baptism is. There's a lot of overlap between the physical and the spiritual here. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? I'm in verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Okay, so the idea here is, remember 1 Peter 2? You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. There was a past life, and now there's a present life. So Paul is saying here, in verse 2, how can we who died to sin, this was an event that took place in our lives, still live in it? And really what he's describing here is the practice of repentance. Before you were living a life of sin going along in the world, you repented of it. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but the idea is you're not living in that lane of sinfulness anymore. Something different has happened. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Okay, so here's this language of baptism here in verse 3. And some ask, is this spiritual? Is it like what happens when you're, you're saved and God places you into the body of Christ? Or is it all physical, like the ceremonial rite? And I think Paul is saying, we see it as happening at the same time. Like, let me unpack this just a little bit more. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. All right, so think about it from this perspective. When the gospel was preached, let me even go back a little bit further. When John the Baptist is baptizing people along the Jordan River, he's down in the river and he preaches a message of repentance, and there's people that are sitting up there on the banks listening to the message of repentance. And if people believed in that message of repentance, a belief took place in their heart, but how did they show that they embraced or believed that message of repentance? They came down into the waters and they were baptized in the Jordan River. And so you have this belief that is taking place and then you have this baptism that is taking place and somebody might say, hey, when were you saved? When did you believe? And they say, well, you know, I think it was in the year of our Lord, um, 25 AD, when John the Baptist was preaching down there, um, September 1st. Well, when were you baptized? Well, I was baptized the day I was, I was saved. Like, it, it all went together. Like, so you got, you, you believed, and then you were, you were baptized that same day? Yes, why wouldn't I? Because my baptism showed that I believed, that I embraced the message that was being taught down there. Fast forward. Jesus comes. He lives the perfect life of obedience. He goes to the cross and takes the punishment that we deserve for our sins. He's buried in the grave for three days. He rises again. Here's the message of Jesus Christ. Here's the baptism of Jesus Christ. So the apostles go on preaching. They're preaching the message. And we'll see here that they're preaching the message to the Philippian jailer. They're preaching the message in Acts 2. And so they preach this message and people are sitting there and they believe in their heart. And what do they do when they, they say, yeah, I believe. I believe inwardly. Now, what's the declaration externally of what's happening internally? 
They come down to the waters of baptism and they are baptized. And so this language here is helpful for us to realize that in Scripture, when you're reading Scripture, sometimes I even got a call from a friend this last week saying, it sounds almost like baptism is what saves an individual. You can read some of those passages. We'll look at one in just a minute where it's like, does baptism save an individual? No, what you see is you see belief in the message and that message that's believed internally is going to be declared externally by those who come forward down to the waters of baptism. They're saying, I believe what this message represents. I believe it represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's baptism. So this is baptism, an outward sign, declaration that you believe in the message of Jesus' death, his burial, and resurrection. So Acts 2, verse 38. Here's Peter preaching at Pentecost. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. All right, now remember what I just said. I just said it's repentance, and you're looking at it, you're saying repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You're like, it sounds like baptism is for salvation. Kind of sounds like it right there. Well, you move down to verse 41. So those who received his word, what did they do? They were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what comes first? The reception of the word. I believe the word. I believe the message that was being preached, that was being taught. And then what did they do in, in terms of declaring it? They were baptized. So God's truth is received. Outward sign now, I'm going to be baptized. Question number two. When is baptism to be received? Well, we see it here. After one has trusted in Christ, not before the trust in Christ. So again, verse 41 of Acts 2. Those who received his word what happened first? They received the word, then they were baptized, and then added to the church. Acts 8. Here's Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So they believed the message first, and then they were baptized second. Now, the reception of God's word always comes first, and at this point, I just want to ask a question because sometimes I get this from parents. The question is sometimes, what about my children? They say that they trust in Christ as their Savior and they want to be baptized. And typically, that parent is asking two questions. One, is this an adultish step that I should wait on? Or two, should I take them at their word and go forward with baptism? And I think both of these questions sort of miss the point, parents. The question is, can you see signs and evidences in your child's life that he or she has truly received the word, the truth of God, into their minds and our hearts? Can you see evidence that it's not simply informational but transformational in their, in their lives? And so on one hand, we want to be careful that we do not prevent young believers from taking that step of obedience to the Lord. We should never prevent young people from taking that step of obedience. But on the other hand, we do not want to give young children or anyone, for that matter, a false assurance of their salvation by saying, yep, you said the prayer or, you know, you told me that you believe and now let's go to the waters of baptism when perhaps they truly haven't believed. So that's just a, 
it's a parental sort of shepherding thing that needs to be taking place as you look at your children. I know they say the words, but do they believe? Question number three, how should baptism be practiced? Um, very simply, you've seen it here, but we're not the authority on it. The word of God is by immersion. Uh, the word for baptize was used in context where the person was plunged into the water. So here you've got Acts 8. Here's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian believes the word of the Lord. They go to a place where there is water, and then the baptism occurs there. Um, you think about John the Baptist being in the Jordan River, baptizing people in, in the river itself. And the question is, well, if it was by a different mode, say sprinkling, couldn't they have just carried jugs of water around and said, okay, here's the preached word. Now just come on down here and we'll sprinkle. And so you just see over and over again that the practice is this body of water and the idea is that there's a plunging aspect that takes place. One passage for me that has really convinced me is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Here's the same word for baptized. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And you think about that, same word, it's you're placed into this one body. Not sprinkled into it, but you're placed into it. Um, also, it's not only by immersion, but it's by the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you'll hear us say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is from Jesus' words in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, where you're to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, question number four. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, if we have our understanding of baptism correct, that it is an outward declaration that you believe in the message, not salvation, then it makes sense that here is John preaching a message of repentance, and Jesus says, yes, I agree with that message. I believe that message. I'm going down to say I'm on board with that message. So Jesus was baptized because he believed the message was true. Question number five. Why be baptized then? Because Jesus commands it. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So just some applicational thoughts here. Church, family, if you have not taken that step of baptism after you receive the word of God, there's no time like the present to take that step. Be baptized. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Take that step because Jesus commands it. Church family, we see people being baptized. Here's another thought. Let's be joyful about the practice of baptism because when those who have received the word of God in faith take that step, it's a joy for us to say, yes, you're with us. You're, one of, you're a people of God. We know that it's not just words. This is an outward declaration that you have received the message of truth. And then third, appreciate the benefits of baptism. By that I mean, think about this, we live in a world that is so confused about identity. People are constantly asking the question, who am I? And here God has given baptism as a clear step for people to take in order to solidify their identity as a follower of Christ. And so we look at this and we're like, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving this tangible step that we can take. It's a reminder of who our identity is. Okay, second ordinance, and we'll move through this quickly. 
Second ordinance is communion or the Lord's Supper. So baptism is a one-time event that takes place in the life of an individual believer, but the Lord's Supper is a repeated practice that is carried out with us as a body. You think about the Lord's Supper, you might, your mind might go back to how God has always given his people feasts and times together. You can go all the way back to Sinai where God gathered people up on Sinai and had a meal with them. But Jesus initiated a unique meal for believers. Matthew chapter 26, 26 through 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and it's that night when he was to die. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, once a month. The bread represents his body. The cup represents his blood. And each time we partake in this meal together, we are affirming several truths. Number one, we are affirming Jesus' death in our place. We can't touch the actual body of Jesus today. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. We can't give him a meaningful hug and say, thank you for paying the eternal price for my sins. So instead, God has given us tangible reminders that we can feel that bread and the cup and when we eat the bread and the cup, we are saying, we believe that this symbolizes Jesus and we need him. He is the source of our eternal life. Without him, we have no eternal life. And some of you can't say that this morning. Some of you can't say that you belong to the Savior. Some of you can't say that you have eternal life. But today, if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ... You could begin that new life with him. You could have that gift. And so if you're a non-Christian here, I'm glad you're hearing this. And so I just invite you to respond to Christ as your Savior. We affirm that Jesus' death was in our place. Second, we're affirming that God's promise is ongoing. So in covenant meals throughout the Old Testament, there was an animal that was slain. The purpose of that sacrifice was to show the two parties, this is serious. We're serious about keeping the covenant. We're serious about carrying out the stipulations of the covenant. Well, each time when we come together with the Lord's Supper, here is the reminder. Christ is the sacrificial lamb. God is faithful to his promise. He sacrificed a lamb, and symbolically, we're seeing this. We're seeing the symbols of Christ's death right in front of us. It represents Jesus' body. And we're remembering, God, you've been faithful to us through Jesus Christ. We're reminded we are a new people. We once were not a people, but now we are a new people because of your covenant to us. There's a third aspect, and that is that it, it teaches us of our unity with other Christians so 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Just describing our unity with one another. All right, so these are the essentials of a local church. I know that it's been kind of teachy even today and maybe the previous weeks, but I think as a church, 
we should know and be able to have an answer for why we do what we do. This morning, we're emphasizing that gospel preaching and gospel ordinances that God uses to keep pulling us back to himself. So I'll close with this. When I was younger and would go out hunting with my dad, he would give me a whistle. And he'd send me to the other side of the property or he'd walk me down the property line and drop me, you know, five-gallon pail right there on the fence. And uh, we'd sit there all morning and he'd say, okay, here's your whistle. Put it around your neck. And so Minnesota, the cold could be going on or, you know, maybe on a piece of property you just get lost. And if anything goes wrong, he would say, blow this whistle and we'll be able to find each other and meet again. And I think here's a father walking his son out into the woods, onto this piece of property, and giving, a, giving me what I need to stay in relationship with him while I'm out there. And it's a thoughtfulness. It's a thoughtfulness for a dad to say, hey, here's how we're going to like, stay in relationship. I want to give you that security that we are in relationship with one another. So here, here is the whistle. And keep in mind, this is before cell phones, okay? So if anything happens, use the whistle and we will be able to be you know, united again. But it's a father who is taking those proactive steps to care about a son and make sure that we're not separated. And I think about these gospel ordinances with the communion and the baptism and gospel preaching where God has kindly given us these practices because he loves us and he cares about us. And oftentimes we might take these things like a young son taking the whistle from dad and be like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, you know, and just kind of go through the motions. But do we see in these things that God has prescribed for us with this preaching and these ordinances that this is an expression of God's love to us? And when we gather each week under his word, his word is powerful. He's declaring it to us. And it's his means of saying, okay, son, okay, daughter, gather in closely. Don't drift. And when we practice these ordinances, it's the same thing. Okay, remember my love for you. Remember what I've done for you. I care about you. And so as a church, we want to be careful that we don't drift into this sort of neutral attitude about it, but keep coming back over and over again, that these are actually practices that God has given. Because why? Because he cares. He loves us. So let's close there this morning.